Welcome to Classical Ideas. This is Greg Soden. In 1998, St. John's Abbey and University hired calligrapher Donald Jackson to create a handwritten and illuminated Bible. This Bible, which is the first Benedictine commissioned illuminated Bible since the invention of the printing press, is a magnificent work of art. Illuminated Bibles have a long and storied history dating back centuries. This new illuminated Bible considers modernity by addressing challenges facing civilization in the 21st century. It alludes to environmentalism, multiculturalism, non-Western cultures, racial equality, and gender equality throughout the art. The St. John's Bible is my topic of conversation today, and my guest is Jonathan Homerichhausen. Jonathan Homerichhausen is an Episcopal writer and scholar on scripture, art, and interreligious dialogue. He is currently pursuing a Ph.D. in Hebrew Bible and Old Testament at Duke University after earning his M.A. in Biblical Studies at the Graduate Theological Union in Berkeley, California. His latest book, Illuminating Justice, The Ethical Imagination of the St. John's Bible, which is out now from Liturgical Press as of 2018, explores the call to social ethics in the St. John's Bible. It was a true pleasure to speak with Jonathan about his book and his interest in the St. John's Bible. I think you will find him a wealth of knowledge in the intricate design and construction of this marvelous artifact. Without further delay, please enjoy my conversation with Jonathan Homerichhausen. Jonathan, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. Can you just spend a moment introducing yourself to the audience, telling us what you do and what you work in? So I am, I am a writer. I've got two books out. The one that I'm going to talk about today is Illuminating Justice, The Ethical Imagination of the St. John's Bible. Um, and also right now I'm working on my PhD in Hebrew Bible slash Old Testament at Duke University. Excellent. Okay, so just a quick little backstory. You and I got in touch when I found you on Twitter because I was talking to Linda K. Wertheimer on Twitter, who is the author of the book Faith Ed. In Faith Ed, she profiles the teaching in the class of a woman named Sherry McIntyre in Modesto, California. And you mentioned that you took this class, which is the only mandatory religious studies education class for high school students in all of the United States. So can you tell me a little bit about your experience in that course back in high school? Tell me some memories of it and what, if any, role it may have played in your long-term career path and scholarship. So I took the class in 2004 when I was a freshman at Johansson High School in Modesto. And part of the reason, I wrote an article for Religion Dispatches about it a few years ago. Uh, I love telling this story because people wouldn't think of Modesto as the cosmopolitan part of California. Uh, it's out in the Central Valley. It's, it's a more agricultural region. It's not 
San Francisco or LA. Uh, and yet for many years, they've had this class going. So when I took it, it was, it was for freshmen and it wasn't a full year like your class. It was, uh, I think it was about half a semester. And it was what, from what I remember, it was a lot of just information, pretty basic facts. You know, what is Ramadan? What are the books in the Bible? Uh, what are some of the holy days in Hinduism and Buddhism? Uh, and yet things that I think Americans don't necessarily know. Uh, so if you looked at say the 2010 Pew Forum survey of religious literacy in America, you know, 47% of Americans know that the Dalai Lama is Buddhist. Uh, 45% could name Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John as the four gospels. So I think it's even at the basic level of facts, we have a lot of work to do. And I'm I'm really happy that there are people like Sherry McIntyre doing that work uh, because, you know, the, the more we learn about each other, the more we are aware of just basic, basic facts about the worlds in which other people live, I think the better off we'll all be. So after that freshman year course and experience with Sherry McIntyre, tell me about the academic path you took that led you through to what you're doing now, pursuing a PhD at Duke. It's hard to trace the lines directly from one to the next. I, I did not grow up in a very religious home. I, I feel I was mostly secular, maybe nominally Christian, uh, until I was about 16 when I discovered the Episcopal Church. Uh, and so that's what I am now. I'm Episcopalian. But I, I, for a long time, I was curious about religion and had all these big questions and didn't quite... Uh, didn't necessarily know that there were other people who were asking these kinds of questions like, well, how do people come to believe what they believe? How do people, why does somebody convert to another religion? Why is it that some people have this strong search for, for faith and connection with God and for other people, it just doesn't seem to make any sense at all. I, I was as interested in what to believe as I was interested in why people believe what they believe. So I, I'm not quite sure, you know, what happened from 14 to 17, but I remember <laughs> at 17, I somehow got a copy of William James, the varieties of religious experience. And this was a, a, a quite dated work of scholarship, you might say, written in 1902. But William James not only was an amazing writer, but he was the uh, one of the founders of experimental psychology in America and very interested in religious experience as well. So this was based on the Gifford lectures he gave. And he was talking about the same kinds of questions, you know, uh, different types of conversion. Uh, he had this idea of the twice-born soul, that is somebody who, in his parlance, maybe has been to hell and back, uh, and how that shapes them, and how their their faith and their optimism is different from somebody who's maybe not experienced a depth of suffering. Uh, so that was the book that really hit it off for me. And when I was in college, I took a lot of philosophy classes. Um, several religion classes, and 
I'm not sure exactly how that led me to Bible, but I, I really do love studying history. I love studying literature. And when I was finishing my undergrad and I had already done Greek and Hebrew, I thought, well, the Old Testament's really interesting. So I, that's how I ended up in my master's program and where I am today. And you've got two books out and you're not done with your PhD. When did your first book come out? Well, the first one, I don't, it, it's partially mine. I was hired as a research assistant uh, for my undergraduate Hebrew Bible professor, David Plines. It's a book of uh, biblical Hebrew vocabulary, mostly nouns, arranged by conceptual categories. It's, um, I don't know if I'd call it riveting, but it's a very good reference work. Excellent. Uh, so the, the book that's really mine was the second one. I wrote that in 2017, and it came out last year. Wonderful. Well, let's talk about that book. Um, yes, I'm happy to. So today we're going to talk about the St. John's Bible and your latest mm -hmm. book in some detail. But mm -hmm. first, I'm just curious how you discovered St. John's University and their School of Theology and Seminary and how you initially got into what would become your book, Illuminating Justice. Like, where did you hear about these folks? So when I started my master's degree, I also started working at the uh, Archives and Special Collections Department of the library at Santa Clara University, uh, which was where I had done my undergrad and where tangentially I was doing my master's. It's a long story. And when I started, my boss said, well, we have this Bible, the St. John's Bible. We had one of the, uh, the large facsimiles. Can you learn a little bit about it <laughs> so you can give a spiel if somebody comes in? And I went a little overboard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can't imagine that they would expect you to write a full-length book on it. I, I really fell in love with the project. Yeah. Um, so I, I didn't know about St. John's University, uh, but I, I knew about kind of Catholics, Catholic understanding of the Bible. Santa Clara is itself a Catholic university, not Benedictine, but Jesuit. Uh, so I, I just fell in love with the, the beauty of the project, the way that it illuminated, sorry, the pardon the pun, uh, <laughs> just illuminated me. It, 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 invited, it invited me and I, the way that it would light up other people when they came to see it. Uh, so as I was working with this project, the, the book just emerged. I wasn't setting out to write a book at all. Yeah. You know, looking at it the last several days, I've just been studying it now for a week or two, and I can completely see why it would be so captivating to you. For those who may be new to learning about this particular project, myself included, what is the actual St. John's Bible and what makes it special? So the St. John's Bible is an illuminated manuscript of the entire Catholic Bible that was started in about 1998 and finished in 2011. And illuminated manuscript means manuscript that is handwritten, just like they did in the Middle Ages, um, and illuminated, that is, it has gold, it has color, it uses the techniques of medieval scribes. It's written on vellum, animal skin, uh, using quills, reed pens. But the imagery is very, very contemporary. 
And the project was a collaboration between the Benedictine monks of St. John's Abbey and University in Minnesota, and they're just outside St. Cloud. And Donald Jackson, who is one of the foremost Roman alphabet calligraphers alive today, working in the, the British tradition of calligraphy. And he was, for some decades, one of the scribes to the Queen of England. Wonderful. Okay, so this is a remarkable project. And the last several days, I've been completely captivated reading portions of your book, watching interviews with the Benedictine monks who had a major role in having this book created. And, and also, nuns. and nuns, thank you. And also with Donald Jackson, the calligrapher. Mm -hmm. And I watched a short introduction video about the St. John's Bible itself and heard the word illumination used a few times. And you just kind of said what that means. And the word also appears in your book's title. And can you tell me a little bit about the importance of the word illuminate in regards to the St. John's Bible and the history of Bibles in general going back hundreds and hundreds of years? Mm -hmm. uh, so it, the, even at the very beginning of the tradition of giant, uh, colorful, deluxe, expensive Bibles within the Christian tradition, gold was being used. So illuminated, of course, illuminate is the idea of light. And that's what gold does. It, it captures light. It reflects light. Um, it's alive. And, you know, then as now we think of gold as, as luxury and beauty. So they're, they're drawing on this heritage. Um, but also I think more broadly, you know, we, we often in St. John's Bible world, illuminating is a, a good pun that we like to use all the time <laughs> because it's not only illuminating in the sense that this Bible is, is lit up by all of the gold. And Donald Jackson himself is a master at the craft and the technique of gilding. And he's, written he wrote a chapter about it in a, in a famous handbook of calligraphy uh, but also we talk about that it illuminates people's hearts and minds so as you begin studying this uh bible this illuminated mm -hmm. bible and the process of research that went into it what sorts of history did you realize it, that you needed to go back and learn more about in order to fully inform your approach to this new illuminated Bible? What knowledge were you missing as you entered this process? I think that there's so many histories that go into this uh, and so many different questions that you could ask of it, different uh, vantage points that might find this project interesting. If you're a, a historian of the book, or if you're a medieval uh, manuscript scholar, the techniques that went into this Bible are very interesting. And, and that's part of the history it draws on, the history of the different scripts um, that are used, how the scribes are working together, uh, the, the way that the quills are cut, the way the vellum is prepared. All of this has a long history to it. If you're interested in the history of theology or biblical interpretation, a lot of that makes its way into this Bible too, because it's not just an artistic vision, it's a theological vision. 
Donald Jackson was working with the Committee on Illumination and Text from St. John's University, uh, a committee of art historians, biblical scholars, theologians, who were all choosing what passages of the Bible would be given special treatment and giving suggestions about how to treat it, what what sorts of imagery, what sorts of aspects of the text might the art convey. So it's a constant back and forth. It's not just an artistic vision. It's a theological vision. Uh, if you're interested in the history of Christian art, Donald Jackson himself is, is very attuned to symbolism uh, and the long heritage of Christian symbols. I talk in my book about like the fish, for example, and the fish can mean many different things in Christian art, and it's used all over this Bible uh, in several different illuminations. Donald Jackson he himself is somewhat of a, you might say, a prodigy. He started art school at 13, and by the time he was in his early 20s, was already working as one of the scribes to the Queen of England. Uh, when he got out of art school, when he finished at about 19 or 20, his senior project was an illuminated manuscript on Christian symbology. Hmm. So he had been thinking about this for many decades before, four decades later, really, he would get the commission from St. John's. Wonderful. And so I was watching a th several of the video sources that you sent to me a few days yes. ago, and I was totally taken aback by the visuals that I was seeing. Every letter is like a complete work of art. And I was also looking at the materials that he was using, such as some egg yolks and mm -hmm. powders and the calligraphy pen that he made out of a feather and cut the end in a certain way. Can you tell me a little bit about the materials and what you learned about the creation of this Bible and what went into it? Um, because it's it's not like, you know, opening up a Google Doc and typing away on something. Right. So Donald Jackson is trained in the, the British tradition of calligraphy that really goes back to Edward Johnston. And he was in the arts and crafts circle at the turn of the 20th century. Edward Johnston wrote, uh, he, he really had rediscovered so much of what was forgotten about Roman alphabet calligraphy, how to cut a quill and how to work with a broad edge nib so that you, you get these letters with these beautiful contrasts of thick and thin. So Edward Johnston wrote this book, uh, Writing and Illuminating and Lettering, in 1906, uh, that is still a major source for calligraphy. So there, this was the tradition that Donald Jackson trained in when he was at the Central School of Arts and Crafts in the 1950s. His teachers were students of Edward Johnston, people like uh, Mervyn Oliver and Irene Wellington. And he was trained in these techniques that are really not easy to do learning how to cut a quill, how to tell, even before you've cut it, uh, what part of the bird and what kind of bird will yield a good quill to write with, um, and different kinds of birds will give you quills with different uh, personalities, so to speak. Uh, so a turkey quill and a goose quill are not the same. And 
working with vellum, preparing vellum, also not easy. Um, and, and Donald Jackson has the familiarity with these tools that comes from decades of working with them. So in addition to vellum, quills, uh, all of the gold leaf and the binding agents, the gesso that uh, puts that gold leaf on that page, um, also all of the colors, the watercolor, the gouache, uh, and also he's working with um, the, the bulk of the Bible was written in this black ink. It's Chinese stick ink. And it's um, it's soot, soot. I think it's soot, honey, and egg whites. I'm not positive on that. Uh, and all of these sticks came from the 19th century. He had, he had gathered them from all over the world because he felt they were better than what was available <laughs> at the time. <laughs> Can you tell me a little bit about vellum for anybody who may not know what that yes. is? Yes, so vellum is animal skin. Okay, and, and is that uh, is that what it's all written on? Yes, so it's expensive, and uh, <laughs> it, this is not a vegan Bible, <laughs> right? No, <laughs> no, but even today, vellum is. I don't. I don't think there's any paper that approaches the the quality and the durability of vellum as a writing source. For one, it's very forgiving. If you make a mistake on paper, it's very hard to scratch it off. And you run the risk of tearing the paper. With vellum, you can scratch away the mistake you made and re-sand it. You have to sand vellum. And it's good as new. So it's a very forgiving surface. If you've ever tried to tear a piece of vellum, it's you can't really tear it. It's durable. It lasts. Um, and also... There's something about how the the ink on vellum, it looks like it's floating. It's hard to describe the effect until you've seen it in person. When I first saw pages of the St. John's Bible, the original pages, you know, it, it was almost like the, the ink was floating on the page and that just made it stand out, pop out more against the background. It's, it's very tactile. Are there any... Uh, works on vellum in major museums in the United States or around the world that people may have seen without realizing this is vellum? Well, if they've seen pages from medieval manuscripts. Okay. Cool. Um, and you know, Donald Jackson is not the only calligrapher around who works on vellum. Um, it, it's, a, it's still a commonly used uh, uh, material. Okay. So I kind of want to get into some of the ways that the art and the text work together within the St. John's Bible. So does the St. John's Bible seek to honor the voices of the varying books of the Bible? Are there different tones or voices that we could see in the art based on the writings of, say, like the Epistle of James versus Leviticus? Like, how do the voices come out from the text in the artwork? Mm. One of the images that is used to describe the project. Donald Jackson, he, he's not only the, the chief artist for the project, he's overseeing a whole team of people who are writing the text itself, the scribes, but also people making the illuminations. 
And these illuminators, these artists, had very different styles. Mm -hmm. So I think one of the ways that you see that the diversity in the project is that it's not just one artist's vision. It, you know, Donald Jackson is the architect. He is the conductor of the symphony. But all of these different artists have their own contribution. So you have someone like Donald Jackson who is – as a calligrapher, he's so precise and very can work on a very small scale. But as an artist, he's bold, he's colorful. You see his brush strokes, they're just very um, big brushes on the page that provide these these very vivid backdrops for the artwork he's creating. But other people worked on the projects include like Aiden Hart, who's a Greek Orthodox icon writer, and he's drawing on that style, very different from Donald Jackson. Uh, Chris Tomlin, another artist who was hired to work on the project, is trained in natural history illustration, or sometimes called scientific illustration. He does these very precise and detailed and uh, anatomically accurate bugs flora and fauna, but mostly bugs all over the Bible. So sometimes people will look at the St. John's Bible and they'll say, well, this is kind of a hodgepodge. There's all kinds of different things going on. And I respond, have you read the Bible? <laughs> <laughs> You're completely right. There's so many different tones or voices in the Bible itself, uh, different genres. You get poetry, narrative, law, prophecy, visions. And I think that's brought out in the art very well. A, a relevant point that you make in the book is the importance and interpretation of iconography in religiously inspired artwork. So you bring up the example of the fish as iconography within the book. Mm -hmm. um, yes. So how do how does the Bible make use throughout? Like, are there threads of artwork that you can find spread throughout the the St. John's Bible? Like, how did you go about writing about that? Well, that was one of my first insights. I first of all, this Bible is very new, and so there there wasn't a lot of scholarly discourse or or conversation about this Bible outside of what was put out by St. John's University. Uh, and, and what they have is really good. They put out three books on the project explaining what they were doing. So one of my insights was just seeing that you really can't uh, fully grasp any one of the illuminations in this Bible until you understand the whole because of the way that symbols are being reused and conversations between different illuminations are, are being created and, and opened up for the viewer to follow. Uh, so I realize I think I've been speaking a lot in very general terms. I will give an example. Sure. So you talked about the fish. Uh, in Christian art, of course, we think immediately the fish uh, in Greek ichthus, the acronym for Jesus Christ, God, Son, Savior. But elsewhere in the Bible, we have the fish swallowing Jonah. And Jonah is seen as a, a type of or a, a kind of a, a figure of Jesus that Jonah went into the whale and then came back out, resurrected almost, mm -hmm. in the same way that Jesus went into the tomb and came out. Uh, 
Also, fish live in water, and as Christians, water is baptism. Uh, so we could think of fish need water to survive in the same way that we need the waters of baptism uh, to live, um, to become Christian and enter that new life. And of course, we have stories about fishermen in the Gospels. So Simon, Peter. Uh, so there's, there's, you know, fish have many different uh, associations and allusions, and this gets brought out in Christian art. So in the St. John's Bible, for example, uh, in the very first illumination, there's a fish. It's the, it's the frontispiece, the, the full-page illumination beginning the book of Genesis, and it's the seven days of creation, and each day is a column. And in the day where the creatures of the fish, uh, the creatures of the sky and the sea are created, there are these fish at the bottom, two different ones. One, a fossil image of a fish, which is interesting because you have all these science and religion debates. And Genesis 1 and 2 are at the very center of those quite often. How old is the earth? And here we have a fossil, a piece of scientific understanding of uh, human origins and planetary origins placed in this Bible. But also there's a, a stamp of a fish taken from mosaics at the uh, monastery on the Jordan River where the miracle of the catching of the fish, I believe, suppose was by legend where it happened. So there's, there's, you know, these fish are worked in there. And then you go to the loaves and fishes illumination in the Gospel of Mark. And that same fish from the mosaic at Tabga, at the Jordan River, is also there. And so then you have loaves and fishes, creation, uh, then there's in the book of Revelation, the fish appears again, and it, it invites us. It, it's not that Donald Jackson thinks, okay, I'm going to put this symbol here and here and here, and this is exactly what it means. He's putting them in different places, and he's he's not the kind of artist who's going to legislate. This is what it means. You must take it only one way. Uh, he wants the viewer to let their own imagination make uh, run wild, to make their own meaning out of it. Uh, and the symbolism is so rich that you, you can relate it to so many different things. I hope that was clear. Yeah. One of the things I'm really amazed by is the precision of each page. Mm -hmm. And I want to know about layout and how the seminary decided and planned the layout because it's so thorough that it must have taken a long time to plan which books of the Bible were going to be on which pages, how many words they were going to put on each page, where there was going to be artwork versus no artwork, and you know how the vo how the art would mingle with the voices of the human authors and the texts and the stories of the Bible. Can mm -hmm. you tell us a little bit about how this was planned in advance and maybe also, how much was spontaneous in the moment and how often they changed their minds about how they were going to put this thing together? Interesting. So the very beginning of the project, the, the two 
biblical scholars who were on the Committee on Illumination and Text that was working with Donald Jackson. The two biblical scholars really just sat down and wrote a list. This is what we want illuminated. These are the, the passages that we feel are the most powerful and meaningful and capture what we want to capture. Uh, so this was David Cotter, who was an Old Testament scholar, and Michael Patella, the New Testament scholar, who wrote the foreword to my book. Mm-hmm. And they also decided what would what passages would get a full page illumination, which passages would get a quarter page or a half page or a third of page. And it's it's not uniform. So certain books of the Bible get a lot more treatment than others. The Song of Songs and the Book of Revelation have the most, which you know, sensible. These are both very visual books. Sure. The epistles of the New Testament don't have quite as much. Uh, and neither does the Pentateuch, by and large. Once you get past the first few chapters of Genesis, there there isn't a whole lot of visualization. So once they figured out what was going to be on the page, what you know, where the illuminations were going to go, layout in medieval manuscripts was always quite a challenge because you don't, you wouldn't generally just sit down and write the book from beginning to end. You'd often have many, several different monks working on a Bible and you'd have to estimate how many pages you need for the section of texts that you are assigning to, you know, brother Harold versus brother Frank. In this case, none of the scribes were were Benedictine brothers. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So uh, what Donald Jackson had, the benefit of the 21st century, is a computer. Yeah. So they actually did the layout for the whole Bible on computer. They created a font that was the same size as the script that Donald Jackson created for the Bible. And that allowed them to estimate every single line of the Bible how much text there would be. So everything was laid out beforehand. And that that means that it it flows much better. There aren't any kind of big awkward gaps or places where the scribe is writing smaller and smaller and smaller so they can finish the text before they get to the end of the page. (laughs) (laughs) And you see that in medieval manuscripts sometimes. Or they're they're, you know, writing squiggles to fill the space because they overestimated Uh, how much space they need, which when you're working with very expensive vellum, it's not a good mistake to make. (laughs) Well, that's another question I have is how how much screw-ups was there? Did they make a lot of mistakes that they had to uh, sand off and redo? Did they have any pieces of vellum that were completely wrecked? Like, what was that like? I don't know if they tossed out any vellum. And I don't know how much they uh, scratched out and re-sanded. I do know that there are several places in the Bible where they made mistakes and left them there. Mm. So let's say you're, you have a column of text and maybe five lines into the column you forget to put a line in. And then you get to the bottom of the page and you realize, oh, this column feels a little short. I forgot a line. What they did several times in this Bible was write the line that they forgot at the bottom of the page and then somehow insert it above where it's supposed to be. So 
in one place, there's a lemur who has, I think he has a rope and he's kind of putting it back in place. There's another one where it's a bee and there's a whole pulley system and the bee is pulling the rope and putting uh, to, to hoist it back into its rightful location in the text. Wow. Another one, there's a dove. And so what people, when I was docenting the project, uh, people would come in and they would say, I want to see the mistakes. <laughs> it's, it's also maybe a helpful reminder that this is a human project. Yeah. And that it doesn't have the cold perfection of a printed Bible. It has all of the quirks of something written by hand. Uh, and as Donald Jackson would say, maybe the, the spirit and the heart and the personality of the scribe in the letters. And a reminder that uh, God can be merciful with our mistakes. In chapter one, you described the art as stunningly contemporary, and this book takes into consideration modern issues that are facing humanity in 2019. So can you tell me how this Bible stands apart as a truly modern document with modern allusions and accounting for environmentalism, multiculturalism, non-Western cultures, racial equality, gender equality, whatever springs to mind? Yes. So one illumination comes to mind immediately in the book of Revelation, the, the four horsemen of the apocalypse are translated into our own 21st century apocalypses, our own fears about what might completely destroy us. So in this illumination, and it's, it's very powerful, colorful, we have oil derricks and nuclear symbols. Those little, uh, those little, what I don't know what they're called. The little, uh, uh, the little yellow triangles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, all the things that we're afraid might destroy humanity. And when Donald Jackson was working on that illumination in 2011, the earthquake happened in Japan. Yeah, Fukushima. I was just and, thinking about that. Right, and there was all of the fear about the the nuclear waste that might. Uh, contaminate the water and poison people. Uh, and so he, he put that in too. So, you know, the, the, the things that it's a reminder that the things that the people are talking about in the Bible, the fears that people have, the, the real human stories behind so much of this really echo in our own time. Maybe the things that we're afraid will destroy us are different, but the fear is still there. Another great example is in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 37, the Valley of the Dry Bones. And this is Ezekiel's vision. He's, he's a prophet, and he's, he doesn't see any future for his nation. He says, look, the, the enemy's at the gate. We're going to go into exile. Israel's a done project. And God uh, makes him speak this, this vision that there's, there's these bones and they're dead and they're dry and there's a whole valley of them and Ezekiel's looking out at these bones and he says and God tells him to command the bones to come to life and they do and of course you know as Christians we're like oh okay this is resurrection this is Jesus but in Ezekiel's own time this is this is the assurance God can make something that looks dead come back to life that is the nation Israel the people uh, in the St. John's Bible the Valley of the Dry Bones 
is tr- given imagery from various 20th century genocides, mm. including the Holocaust, but also genocides in Cambodia um, and uh, mass killings in Afghanistan. Horrible, horrible human atrocities. And the reminder that even out of this, there is hope and God can make something new. And at the top of the page are these very powerful rainbows, which all, of course, allude back to the story of Noah, when God says, I will never again destroy all of humanity. And my sign will be the rainbow in the sky. Speaking of hope, Mm -hmm. um, there's been a lot of work done in recent generations to do interfaith diplomatic work where religious leaders from different religions will come together under a banner of accomplishing something, greater human unity or a project or what have you. Yeah. Does the St. John's Bible give any nods to religions beyond Christianity? So I think it does the most with Judaism. Mm -hmm. And of course, in the last say, 50 years, really since Vatican II, the Catholic Church and Christianity as a whole, especially the Western Christianity, has really had, I would say, a large-scale repentance in our understanding of and relationship with Jews and Judaism. I think that shows up all over this Bible. There's a very conscious appreciation for the Jewishness of Jesus, for the Jewish tradition uh, as a whole. So for example, every time that Jesus says something in Aramaic, that's put in the margins in these Hebrew letters. And there's symbols throughout the Bible, stars of David, menorahs, symbols that are generally we associate with Judaism and a reminder that is you know for the old testament this is not just ours this is a book that we share so in a bible it's natural that the jewish christian relationship is especially highlighted there's some nods to other religions i'm assuming that was your next question yeah i was just i'm just curious like what you uh, what you saw so i'll i'll give a perfect example the very first illumination of the whole project was the genealogy in Matthew. So there, there are seven volumes in the St. John's Bible, the bound version. Um, and the first one they did was not the Pentateuch, but Gospels and Acts. Uh, in part, they, they knew that this was the one they wanted the most. And because they're fundraising for the project as they're doing it, uh, this would generate the most excitement among Christian groups. So... The menorah, the the opening of the Gospel of Matthew is this genealogy. It's Jesus, I I sometimes say, it's his his Jewish credentials, right? Yeah. uh, He goes back to David, and he is in in this lineage of this people. And the family tree is presented in the shape of a menorah, this very Jewish symbol, and the symbol of the ongoing life and continuation of the Jewish people. Even today, we think of the menorah most associated with the the Hanukkiah, that is the celebration of Hanukkah, which is 
a remembrance of a time when the Jewish people were being persecuted and when God delivered them. So this full-page menorah, which has Abraham at the bottom and Jesus at the top, and all of the names of all of the people in the genealogy, and the women are added, by the way. The women are not in the text, but they're added into the illumination. And everyone's name is in Hebrew as well. But the arms of the menorah are Tibetan Buddhist mandala imagery. Oh, sweet. And the flames of the menorah are in gold. They're arabesque patterns taken from medieval Islamic manuscripts. And at the very bottom of the page, there's the name of Abraham, and on one side, Sarah, but on the other side, Hagar. And oh, below wow. that, in Arabic, Hajar. So a reminder that this Abrahamic family tree has this whole other branch that doesn't really get as much attention in the Bible, but in Islamic tradition becomes much more prominent. So it's it's Jewish, it's also Islamic, it's also Buddhist. It's, as Donald Jackson put it, it's, it's a reminder of the many different traditions that are seeking truth and understanding. And there was a story in one of the, the first public exhibitions of pages from the St. John's Bible at the Minneapolis Institute of Art. Donald Jackson was on his way there and he was quite scared that what if this is considered appropriation of somebody else's symbols? Mm -hmm. He gets there and the curator who's overseeing the exhibit sees this and he says, I am Jewish. We must have this here. So I think when you look at it in the context of what the Catholic Church has been doing, the, pro the progress that it's made in um, repentance and peacemaking with Jewish people and uh, understanding of Jewish religion. I think it really fits into that story. Uh, How does it feel to, um, for you as a researcher, scholar, and writer to have had the opportunity to write the first scholarly exploration of the finished product outside of the inner circle of those who produced it? Well, I wasn't setting out to. I, I had all these ideas, and I, I saw these connections between different illuminations that nobody had um, really talked about. So my book, essentially, each chapter looks at one particular issue of, of justice that Christians are facing in our own time. A chapter on interreligious justice, Jewish-Christian understanding. A chapter on justice for women and highlighting the agency, the role, the voice of women in the Bible, uh, and a chapter on care for creation. And I situate the illuminations of the St. John's Bible within recent Catholic teaching, recent uh, biblical scholarship and theology, and, and really show how these symbols are working across the Bible as a whole and weaving their way through different illuminations. Nobody... So no, nobody that I had seen had really done that um, thematic approach to the St. John's Bible. I will say, though, I, I was only the first by a matter of months. Yeah. <laughs> because there's another one out now from Whitfinstock. Um, it's uh, the St. John's Bible and its tradition. And it's an edited volume of essays by uh, scholars involved with the 
uh, gosh, what are they called? The Conference on Christianity and Literature. So it's edited by Jack Baker, Jeff Bilbro, and Dan Train, and they're good essays too. So I, I think it's starting to take off, and I'm hoping to see more work on the St. John's Bible coming out soon, uh, my own and others. <laughs> yeah, um, and I know that you teach a class about it as well. You teach a summer school class in the St. John's Bible. I taught one class. Uh, it was, yes. How was that? How was it? Oh, it was it was very it was a wonderful experience. I was invited by the the dean of the American Baptist Seminary of the West in Berkeley to do a two week summer intensive on my and introducing students ministry students to this conversation around uh, the Bible, the arts, the use of creativity and imagination. For me, that's really where it gets exciting because we often think of the Bible as something that you dissect or you accept or you uh, believe. But what about something that spurs your own imagination? What about using the Bible as a, a, a catalyst for your own creativity, just as the artists of the St. John's Bible did? I love it. So, so I, I, this was a wonderful class, but it was much more than just the St. John's Bible. I, I brought in all kinds of different things, and I hope they got something out of it. <laughs> so the, the creation of the Bible lasted from about for about 15 years, 96 to 2011. And I've heard the book described as the same gospel, but it's the gospel for the 21st century. Is that description accurate and true to you? Did anything get left out? Like, what do you think? Well— did anything get left out? I mean, no artistic project can do everything. Of course. So there are some things that are discussed more than others, I think. But I think what they did do, they did very well. And I yeah, I'm, I totally what agree. Are, it's a 21st century thing. What are your future projects in the works related to either St. John's Bible or other things? Well, right now it's my dissertation. <laughs> yeah, um, that's I, I have a clock I'm on, so I, I do have another book in mind about the St. John's Bible, but I don't think this is the time to get to it. I I think that there's a lot of richness in the Song of Songs illuminations, and the Song of Songs is one of those books that we don't pay a lot of attention to now in, in churches. It isn't really big in the lectionary, but in the medieval tradition, and especially in the medieval monastic tradition that the Benedictine monks of St. John's Abbey come out of, the Song of Songs was a hugely influential book um, in, in its deep intimacy and in how it speaks about, in monastic interpretation, the relationship between humanity and God. Uh, well, so I'm, I'm hoping to do a book on that. And I'm also working with Donald Jackson on ooh. some of his early work. So I'm, I'm hoping – I've been working on looking at his biblical work before the St. John's Bible and showing how that is also part of the story. So I've actually been in contact with him, and um, I don't know where that will go, but it's been very life-giving. And he is, he is a very uh, kind, down-to-earth friendly and incredibly uh, interesting and articulate character. And such a talent, just such an yes. unbelievable talent. 
Um, well, Jonathan Homeringhausen, this has been delightful. I love the new, I love the book, and sure. I love that your work has been able to teach me about something brand new, the St. John's Bibles. This is all brand new to me as of mm-hmm. only a few weeks ago. So mm-hmm. I'm super appreciative of you and your scholarship. So if people want to find out more, where can they find you if they want to follow your work? So I have a website, uh, J-D-H-O-M-I-E dot com, J-D Homey, because I don't want to ask everyone to spell Homerichhausen. <laughs> um, I also have a Twitter. I'm not on there quite as much, but go to my website and I have information there. Wonderful. Thank you so much, sir. This has been a real blast. All right. Thank you. Classical Ideas is produced by me, Greg Soden. Music on Classical Ideas is composed and performed by Derek Streibig. You can find his music at www.wearewarmmusic.com. If you like this show, please rate it on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can email me at classicalideas@outlook.com. Or find me on Patreon at patreon.com slash classical ideas podcast. Thanks so much for listening.